Hello, welcome to our part two in a series with Dr. Jill Yersak about ALS and ALS research. I'm your host, Tony Heil, and I'm a communication director with the ALS Association. We're embarking on a, a series here to talk about uh, some of the general questions about ALS and get into some specifics. So you can consider this a bit of a ALS 101, uh, though you're not going to get any continuing education credits on this. At least I don't think so. Um, last podcast, which you can find online and on iTunes, uh, was about what is ALS, going into what the disease does to a person, and how we know that. Um, but part of the reason we know that, and, and we know the direction of the disease, is through some really incredible research that's been going on, not just since the Icebucket Challenge, but for decades, to better understand the disease and to hopefully find some treatments and eventually a cure uh, to help the thousands of people affected by ALS every year. So joining our podcast today, again in part two of our series, is Dr. Jill Yersak, Manager of Research Communications at the ALS Association. Uh, Dr. Yersak, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Um, I'm, and today we're going to be talking about what is ALS research? Because that's a very broad topic, but that's the point, is to kind of give people who are new to ALS um, some inroads to understanding the disease a bit better. So when we're talking about ALS research, what, what does that mean, uh, Jill? Right. So... Research happens, you know, there's a huge research pipeline that happens when, so it's not just one step. There's right. multiple steps along this process to get to your FDA treatment or cure and out to the open market. It's not just one one thing that has to happen. It's a whole series of things. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things I need everyone to understand. It's not just, doesn't, it takes a while and it's complicated because there's, there's multiple steps that have to happen. Because a disease is complicated. Exactly. And so... You know, so I want to give you an example. So when, and I know, like, it's been in the news that different, that there's been new ALS genes discovered, and um, that, which is great, but it, I want everyone to understand is that when the gene is discovered, that's really one of the first steps in research. You have a gene, great, but now what, ha what happens with that gene to make you have ALS? So how do we, so we discover that, a gene, and you said there are many genes that affect ALS, and that's only the ten percent. Right. So right now we know there's like oh, there's about over thirty genes that um, are known to cause ALS, um, and there I'm sure there will be more um, discovered in the future. But essentially, when you have when you discover a new ALS gene, we you we know that this gene is mutated or has a mutation, meaning that the gene is not reading its instructions correctly. Right. So it doesn't. It doesn't get into. It doesn't become the protein it's supposed to be. So when you have a gene, it has DNA. It has a code, and that code is then that code is then not correct. There is some sort of change in that code, right? So then that like, like the pages in a book, the pages are reversed, or it's in a different language. Instead of English, it's in French. Right. So there's some change that happens, and so when you have DNA, it gets changed into which DNA is really instructions to make protein. And so when you have a, a genetic mutation, your protein that's made is also changed. So either it's not working properly or there's too much protein or too less, not enough protein. So there's things that can happen when you have that gene mutation. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, so it can either say too much of that protein, not enough of that protein. Would, would a gene mutation also have change the protein yeah that's why I just yeah there's also changes in that protein like so it'd be like a different kind of protein yeah so that so it's not working it's not normal anymore it's we like to call it an, almost like an aberrant protein it's not doing its normal function 
So just to, like, because I have kids, I'm trying to make this as easier for me to yes. understand. Because you're the smart one here. Uh, hopefully, when it comes to this, at least, um, it would be like if I told my kid to get cookies out of the cabinet, and instead he went and got grapes. Right. So the so kind of a dumb way of looking. At it, <laughs> no, but it's true. So your cell is not doing your cells in your body are not doing what they're. Proteins in your cell are not doing their, what they're supposed to be doing. They're going on a different pathway, and thing, which can cause damage to your cell. Right. And then the ultimate thing that happens is then you um, that leads to cell toxicity and death of those cells. And in and in ALS, the cells that die are motor neurons. And I talked about motor neurons in my last podcast, so I'm not going to go into detail about mm-hmm. that now. But so great, so you have a gene, and we know it's mutated. But now scientists really next want to try to figure out what's going wrong in your cells, especially in those motor neurons because they're the, mo- the main type of cell that dies in ALS. So what's wrong? You know, that's the big question. What's, what happens? And that's called identifying a disease pathway. And a lot of scientists like to say they're, they're identifying a disease mechanism, which is the same thing. So what's going wrong in the cell? And problems in the, in the cell can happen in all different ways. And just a couple examples. Um, they don't. The cells don't get rid of their trash or the unwanted byproducts, of, which gum up the cells and cause toxicity. Their um, how motor neurons signal get changed. Um, transport within motor neurons are different. So there's different disease pathways, and there's many disease pathways that have been identified. And researchers are working hard to discover more new disease pathways. So this all happens in a lab. Right, it's. Does it always happen in a lab? Yeah, well, pretty much. Or like, or can a lot of this research can happen on your computer, so you don't necessarily have to be in a lab. But um, a lot of the the analysis of the data that you get can be you you can work from home nowadays. Can you can do it in the airport on your phone for some of this stuff? Some of it, but most of it is in a lab. Right, (laughs) and you know we call that bench research, right? And so, like you see, you see labs in on CSI, you know, on TV. Mm-hmm. And they're not, but most of the time, like CSI, you're working under fluorescent lights. That's in the dark. That doesn't happen. Most of the time, we're in the, we, we like sunlight. Right. <laughs> we don't want to be in the dark um, unless you're working with fluorescent proteins um, for, if there's a reason. Right. You, you don't necessarily, like, when you watch, I'm, I'm taking notes here, uh, you don't necessarily act like on the sci-fi network when a movie, you don't just take a blue thing and a yellow thing and suddenly it's green and explodes. So that's no. How, I wish it was that simple. Right. You don't get a lot of explosions in ALS research. We hope not to because people get hurt. <laughs> right. They get hurt and it just be weird when it comes to gene research. It, that'd be bad. We, we try to avoid explosions and then there's all kinds of problems that right. happen in your lab. You don't want your lab to burn down. Um, so, you know, there's so there's a host of different techniques people use um, at the bench to understand these disease pathways, um, like understanding the cell biology of your of the motor neurons or the biochemistry, and they do a lot of modeling of these disease pathways. They model it in, your, okay. in cells, in um, animal models, mm-hmm. and in even stem cells derived human... Um, Induce pluripotent cells, stem cells derived from people from ALS. So it's different ways that research happens at your bench, and it's not just one technique that happens. And for animals, I know from uh, listening to chief scientist Lucy Bruin, um, she's talked about there's lots of different animals that they use. Yes. And that's partly because ALS 
presents itself in animals, or you can have a you can or you, you model can it in model it in, a, in yeah. other animals for different reasons. Because um, I, I just want to recommend a book called Your Inner Fish. I don't know if you ever heard of it. No. It's, it, it, for me, it's a very basic biology book, but it just kind of explains how like a human being is like all these other animals. Because if you go to the zoo, you can see any animal, and we're very similar. You know, you got. Um, a lot of genes are conserved in many animals. So right. we have, for example, when I did my postdoctoral research, I worked on C. elegans, which is a microscopic worm. So then they have genes mm-hmm. are cons- that are conserved um, in ALS that people have, that humans have. So you can model ALS in something as small as a microscopic worm to um, rats, to mice, and even um, primates. And that's uh, really important, not just because then you're not modeling ALS on a human being. Um, and and impacting them on someone that you care about that may be very disastrous if you were doing something. Right. But so also because they're the lifespan of those things and how the genes work in those, you can watch things more quickly in certain other animals, especially something like what you just mentioned. Yeah, like the worms that live only a couple of weeks. Right. Their lifespan's a few weeks. Which so. is sad. Which is sad. <laughs> but, but also good but for watching. But, it, but you can test something very quickly. Right. In, um, in a microscopic worm, or even in yeast, mm-hmm. in like a baker's in. Yeast. Plus, you can get a lot of them. You can yeah. get a lot of those worms to do this. Right, and it's much cheaper to do research, so it's great to, um, to, to do something at a basic level starting there. If you find something, it's great, and then you can talk to your researcher friends who work in flies, and then you, they can talk to their friends who work in mice, and you can go up the chain. And now with the um, induced pluripotent stem cells that are derived from patient tissue, you can really model disease in something human like, but not in the actual human. So right. it's a really nice, um, it's a process. So you don't just model one animal or organism. It's most, you go through a series of different organisms. So you can see that um, when we do this, when we have this gene in a, in a mouse, it does X. So let's see how it works in another thing. Right. Or if it works in that worm, or, or it doesn't work, or something happens, well, let's see if it's consistent. Uh, and that, that can really help you to see what's going on because also you can observe it more easily. There, there may be better patients. Um, there's a whole host of problems with doing research with a human being. Just, just Yeah, we don't want to go into that. Yeah, but, yeah, there's a lot of problems. So, you know, and, and researchers work together and they, you know, validate. So I found something in my mice. And so I would give my mice to another lab and they would test the same thing just to see if they get the same results. Because Scientists want to be absolutely sure that whatever we find, the disease pathway we find, we, and is also happening, could happen in humans before we have it, before we make a drug. So that's the next process. We now, we have this bench research, right? And we now, we want to translate it mm-hmm. into, um, to, to people, into clinical trials, which is called translational research, which is like bench research. You take an idea from the bench and translate it into a, into like a compound that could be used in clinical trials. So, what how much time might that take? Years. Years. Yeah, and because um, it's so complicated, right? And so, I don't. D- depending on what it is, I can't give it time, but it's years. Um, right, because everyone is different. Right. You, you can't, and that's part of the frustration. If you're following research, um, you think, "Oh, this is going to take." two years, but maybe it takes one, maybe it takes five. You, yeah, you, could get you can't really, know. You could get really lucky, you have great results, and you'd say you have a timeline, you're ahead of schedule, which is great, but a lot of times um, your experiments not, don't work for some reason, You have to, and you have to start over. Right. So it's it can go both ways, um, and that's why sometimes research can take um, more time than you would expect. And so 
once you get into that translational research, so now, as like I said, you have a gene, you know what the, what's wrong, and now you want to see how can we fix it. So people, scientists then design drugs or compounds to then target that therapeutic target or disease pathway to make your cell better, mm -hmm. your motor neurons better. And so that's a, I'm not going to go into drug development because it's a, a whole podcast in itself. Right. But essentially they want to optimize a drug, get the best dosing, you know, make sure it's hitting its target and that kind of thing. So that's a whole host of things that have to happen. And at that point, what happens is that those academic labs that can be sometimes small, they partner with industry mm -hmm. that are interested in this great idea. And then the industry can help the, um, have the chemists and the manufacturing and all the other the, the components that need to happen before you get into clinical trials. And they have the money to support it because it's expensive to, to make those compounds and to optimize them. And that's part of the reason why it's great to both do advocacy because money helps from the government to those academic things right. and, to donate NIH, to, yes. and to donate to the ALS Association because our research programs. a lot of the research we're doing is kind of the ground level stuff and then the drug companies can take what works and just kind of work from there. Right. So on our, on our, we can talk about it a little bit later, but we, as an association, we fund research up to, and sometimes including um, phase two of clinical trials because past that's very cost prohibitive. But most of the time, we do we have a lot of basic research that we focus on. But we also focus on in the in between the drug development, where we help, we try to help those academic labs find those industry partners to then supplement money and resources to get the, to move those drug, for, drugs and compounds forward as quickly as possible. Yeah, we talk about how expensive it is, but part of the work of the ALS Association isn't just spending the money. It's connecting the people and the collaborations. and, and colla yeah, collaborating and, and, and uh, uh, making sure that the best research is being done, not just being funded. Right. And, you know, another big part of that drug development process and the translational process are, is that biomarker development that needs to happen. And biomarkers are any measurable substance in the body that changes in quantity as the body changes. So... Examples, I said these before, you know, changes in your blood or urine or um, even structural changes in your brain, which you can measure, um, or chemical changes in your brain, which you measure by PET or MRI scanning, mm -hmm. um, which is really great. Things are happening right now. And right now, there's no approved biomarkers for ALS. And we, they're so important for that development to happen alongside that drug development process to, to understand, do we know... Okay, you have a drug that's great, but do we know it's hitting its target? Right. Is it doing it's what it's supposed to do? So those biomarkers are going to be a huge part of that process, and people are working very hard on to, to discovering and optimizing those, um, validating those biomarkers, which again is another whole topic in itself. So correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm trying to piece together um, just this basic understanding. So the research looks at uh, the genes. Well, first we look at the populations of people, because if we know that. There's these group of people that have limb onset ALS, then and particular kind of limb onset. I don't know. Then from there, maybe we can figure out a gene because we studied them. We see their genetic things, and then we find out what that gene does. Does it affect a protein in X Y? What protein does it affect? How does it affect that protein? How does that affect cells? Yeah, the gene turns into is the code to make the protein. So you have the gene that would now we know that protein is going to be affected, right. and then we can figure out what's wrong. It's almost like I'm envisioning almost like a circle because the symptoms help figure out that there might be a problem and then the problem may help us figure out that there are certain symptoms. Right. So a lot, there's a huge movement right now with scientists to um, collect clinical data mm -hmm. um, along with the genetic data 
mm-hmm. to, along with the genetic sequencing to then pair like, well, this person's progressing this way and you can group them based on progression or other clinical data. And then you can and look at symptoms like, well, this person has these symptoms versus these people and you can match it with the genetics and they can really have this full picture of the person and to really understand everything at the same time and to then cater those treatments and drugs to understand the whole picture, not just your genes, but mm-hmm. also what's happening along the way. And those biomarkers that you're talking about, which we can discuss in a future podcast in more detail, but those will help to understand where we're going in that pathway. Um, and see how the disease progresses, yes. Yeah, see how the disease progresses and see how any of those drug therapies are working. Right, so then you can see, well, you have a biomarker, you know, and you can see like, okay, well, my drug's hitting its target, and I can see like, that structural change in my brain or that chemical in my brain is now being that was, was toxic that that we tagged is mm-hmm. now like decreased you can see as a person maybe be getting better you can see that those biomarkers also to those toxic proteins also getting reduced so it's this great circle or not getting worse or not getting worse or stabilizing right so maybe you know that if you have and i'm, I'm i don't want to give the wrong information so instead of saying an SOD1 gene, which I don't want to get the wrong information about. Let's just say the basketball gene, because there's a basketball near me, um, <laughs> and, or the b-ball gene, 82, um, that it it makes your uh, the cells at your spine, um, the motor neurons that connect your brain to your spinal fluid or whatever. I, your motor neurons, Your yes. motor neurons, like at that, because there's lower motor, lower upper and upper. Lower, motor, upper See, lower. this is why you're here yes. to, correct, to make sure I'm right, <laughs> that it makes your upper neurons... Um, not the atrophy at a certain rate. And so a biomarker, you'd be able to figure out that, oh, with that gene, it seems to be affecting them at that rate, or maybe, or in that way, maybe because you're saying that um, a gene can make it um, too much information, not information, like getting affected in a certain way. So it's a can, way to track disease progression and, and what's wrong happening in your cells. And then, and then, so you'll know the disease progression in terms of watching what's going on with those cells. And then if you have a drug therapy or a gene therapy or some other way of doing that. Yeah, potential therapeutic target, we like to call it, because we're not sure if it's going to be a therapeutic target until right. we know. So if you have research. the potential therapeutic target, then the research with biomarkers will be able to see not just are your outwardly symptoms working, because maybe they're not changing right away, but you say, oh, actually, from what we're seeing from the brain imaging, we expected your disease to do go at this rate, and now it's going at a lesser rate. Or those protein levels, are, yeah, or those protein levels are tracking or getting decreased or increased, or you can see that happening before you see changes in symptoms. Right. So it's exciting, and there's, it's an exciting time. And um, that means that if you, if you know that, maybe you might feel frustrated that you're not cured of ALS after taking a drug for a couple months, but you could feel hope that, hey... Something is happening Something's on happening. the molecular level that we can't you can't just see. You have to right. track with the biomarkers. And so, yeah, like you said, that is very exciting because we wouldn't have been able to do that just a few years ago. Right. And, you know, the, the other thing I wanted you to, to understand and everyone out there to understand is that, you know, this whole, you know, this whole process, this whole research process is happening along this research pipeline towards the treatments and cures. But you, the ALS Association and um, other res- and researchers we're all trying to figure out ways to help people living with the disease um, more immediately, meaning how can we help them live better lives and, I mean, you know, be, be more comfortable. And so, you know, there's a huge effort to go and um, strengthen or improve our assistive technology. And Elisa Brownlee did a wonderful podcast, which I think you should listen to. About, and she's set up to do some more, too. Yeah, great. She's amazing. And she 
has, does a great, so I'm not going to go, I don't want to steal her thunder in any way. She mm-hmm. does a great job. But there's a way ways to help people with ALS communicate better. And the ALS Association supports grants that are trying to improve that technology. And we're actually even finishing up a, it's called the ALS Assistive Technology Challenge, where which we are partnering with Prize for Life, which is another ALS nonprofit organization, to help to develop um, assistive communication technology to help people communicate with ease. And we're actually in Dublin at the International ALS MND International Alliance meeting. We're actually doing a, our finale event, and at the event, um, we have we have judges come are coming and to to judge and to um, pick the winner. And patients, living people living with the disease, are actually going to have a say. They're actually going to test out the different prototypes. That's great. So you have five finalists. At the end, we were awarding a four hundred thousand dollars prize. Very excited. And four hundred thousand dollars can go a long way. Significant. And I know I've talked to some of the teams, and they're very hopeful. I'm excited. And so hopefully, you know, I'm sure we'll you know we'll make a great decision, and we'll see what happens. And you know, even if they don't win, they can apply for our grants later on, and we can still hopefully fund them in the future if they have a great prototype that just didn't happen to win that day. And, you know, listening to what you're saying about assistive technology and knowing Elisa and then also thinking about the disease pipeline you're talking about, part of the thing we'll be able to do is um, get people ready for certain devices and be appropriate for them at an earlier time. Right. So that, like, if the diagnosis improves and disease progression is, you know, is slowed, you mm-hmm. know, we'll be able to, to step in hopefully earlier than we ever before. And I, I know... Um, a lot of places are working on brain-computer interface yes. and, and seeing if it's comfortable for people. And so you'll be able to kind of guess that Dave has ALS. We understand his disease progression looks like Y. And so we're going to do X with this device because we think it will be effective. And we think it's effective based on evidence. Right. So we're going to be able to collect more and more evidence to make more trials more successful or more effective. And more technology successful right. based on what what's happening in disease as we learn more. And, you know, one of the things I also want everyone to understand is that the ALS Association isn't, research program isn't made up of bricks and mortar. We don't have a secret lab in Washington, D.C. at our headquarters right. with scientists working, um, even though that'd be funny, but we don't. Well, it would, it would be great <laughs> if you had just a lab that was constantly 24 hours a day. Well, we have, but we, we do something different. And we actually, we reach even farther. We have a global research program mm-hmm. in that we fund researchers all over the globe, top ALS researchers. So we, we fund people in the United States, but also internationally, we, um, and, which is important. And so we, we touch on everything, and we, we fund the most exciting and most um, promising research programs um, that include all those different, that all along that research pipeline, not just the basic and translational research, but research that's helping people uh, more immediately, like assistive technology. Or, and we also fund um, research that helps to understand what's happening with caregivers and to improve their well-being and to improve symptom management or even alternative treat- treatments. So it's not just that bench research that everyone normally just thinks of that's in, happening in the lab. Yeah, I, I just perked up because I um, went onto our website, alsa.org slash research, and there's this great pl- map on there that shows you pinpoints of places that are conducting research all over the world. Um, obviously, the ALS Association is based in America, so most of the stuff is happening here in the USA. But um, there's trials going on in Canada, in United Kingdom, in France, in Germany, in Israel, in, um, in South America, Australia, 
China. Yeah. This map thing is great. I'm glad whoever yeah, suggested it was very yeah, smart. We, we worked, so the ALS Association worked very, very hard on this um, site. It's And it's beautiful. Thank you for it's, helping me promote it. <laughs> I was even going to do that, so thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's if you look at www.also.org backslash research, it's a whole host of information about what we do as um, a research program. And that, that, that map you're talking about is under the Research We Fund page. And you can search... Um, all in your area, what's happening, and it, it, once you click on your state, you can you go to your pro, a project page of each researcher that we fund. It'll give you a little summary of what they're doing, um, any progress they've made that they want to share with us, and the impact. Like how's it impacting the ALS community as a whole? What's the big picture? What are they trying to do? And so um, it's a great resource. I encourage people to look at it. Yeah, I mean, as of right this minute, and this information is constantly changing and growing. Yeah. There's stuff. There's like eleven projects going on in Florida, seven or more in Pennsylvania. Yeah, this is a fluent thing. And there's eighteen in California, and and so I I really do encourage you because, like you said, the Yale Association is funding some of the best and brightest people um, in the field, and you can even see some of the people that are working on it. Um, some I I don't know these researchers as well as you do, but um, I know that the Yale Association uh, works closely with them, connecting them. So there's yeah. some really smart people. Uh, from diverse backgrounds because it's a diverse disease working on this. Yeah, and, you know, what we encourage as an association is collaboration. That collaboration piece is so important. You know, we collaborate ourselves with different academic labs, different industry partners, other nonprofit and government, which I can talk about in a different po podcast. There's this huge collaboration because we can't, we don't work alone. And... We don't work in silos anymore, and the more we work together, the closer and the faster we are going to come to those treatments and cure. And there is a huge shift, I think, in the recent years for researchers not to work in those silos, but to work together and collaborate and to reach out to these industry partners and mm -hmm. really work together. And it's so important. And we're ha I'm happy to see that happening and happening more than ever, and it's going to increase, I'm sure. Do you think that that is happening um, even bigger in the ALS community because of the disease, or is it just the trend in research generally because of how information is shared? You know, I can't talk for other diseases, so I'm not. I'm really not sure, but I know as an ALS community, you know, the, I've met a whole host of um, researchers in the in the field, ALS researchers and in industry and other areas, and we are committed, mm -hmm. you know, and we want to help as quickly as possible. We know how, you know, this is a devastating disease, and we want to get to that cure and to those treatments as quickly as possible. So the, the more we work together, the faster we're going to get there. And people get that. It, definitely in ALS. And I mentioned in the last podcast that my grandfather passed away from ALS. Um, and I'm getting to the... Uh, the research we're doing may help thousands of people with ALS at any one time because one drug only might only impact half of the people with ALS or you know because it's a very different disease. Um, but my mother has MS. My grandmother on hers... Her side had uh, Parkinson's disease, millions, so many people have Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases of different kinds. So the research that we do can kind of give clues to those other diseases and vice versa. The drug companies that are working on ALS, many of them helped with drug therapies for MS. So you know that they are, they're not just doing ALS and that's it. No, no. It's, you know, they're, so like I said in the beginning, that research pipeline along that process if you you know you find that mutated gene and you then that leads into finding a new disease pathway that pathway disease pathway you know that's 
that what's going wrong in your, those in the cells of people with ALS can also be going wrong with people with Parkinson's or MS or another neurodegenerative disease. So that compound that gets developed can then be tweaked to then treat other um, other diseases, which is really exciting. So, you know, that's a big thing. Like the more people we can help, the better. And people under and researchers are really um, cognizant of that. So the research we're doing, we're understanding the whole pipeline. And you're looking at the gene, many genes. Mm -hmm. You're looking at what that gene does incorrectly. What's, what happens, what goes wrong, and then how can we fix it? How can we fix it in the cell? What, what it's doing to uh -huh. the symptoms, and, and then how the symptoms kind of lead to what gene, yeah, what's what, what the problem the is. So it's all all interconnected. Yes. The, ther the therapies, what was the phrase you used for therapies? The mechanism yeah so the disease yeah so there's disease mechanisms that were and pathways that we're identifying right um so the the different kind of therapies whether it's drug or something else yeah the p potential therapeutic targets can be then translated to different diseases also the the ptts sure <laughs> um the potential therapeutic targets can or go to any one of those parts of the pathways possibly mm -hmm. and they can do different things so if your gene is doing x it can help with that uh, and then that can translate to other things. That's why it's translational, right? Right. So I, I'm so learning a lot listening. Yeah, you translate your ideas into the into the clinic. That's I'm trying to write it research. down, and I'm, I'm and I'm feel bad because I'm writing it on my phone because my handwriting is horrible. And uh, you know, there's a lot to learn, and the best way you can learn is uh, to go to alsa.org. Yeah, but backslash research, and I'm also um, I'm happy to if anyone wants to reach out to me directly, I'm happy to answer any questions. So feel free to contact me. And how can they do that? And you can um, email me at j yersak y e r s a k at alsa dash national dot org. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me, and um, or contact. Anyone in the association, they can find me. <laughs> and you can also tweet at ALS Association. Yeah, you can, you can um, post your questions on Facebook. But if you want to ask me directly, I'm happy to help you. Yeah, the ALS Association is working hard with a lot of great researchers. So mm -hmm. that now we know that what your funding is going to is to a wide variety of gene therapies mm -hmm. and understanding, a wide variety of ways to attack those genes and to those pathways whether it's animal models, whether it's stem cells, because we're using your own stem cells these days, right? You're not just, there's right. lots of different kind of stem cells. Right. We're, we're moving towards those induced pluripotent stem cells, which I can get into a different podcast. Right. I didn't want work. to get into a lot of detail on that today, but. Um, but they're derived from people living with the disease, yes. Which makes it a lot more effective. It's very exciting, yes. In, in theory, it makes it a lot very effective because you kind of. It's, you, yeah, it's kind of translating, you know, the person into a dish. Like you can see the genetic, like what's happening in a cell. In a dish like mm -hmm. in, from your and you can move it more quickly and with less harm right um and so you can you can kind of design a therapy that's going to that and yeah, it's, a good, it's, it's a good springboard into clinical trials but they use um stem cell induced pluripotent stem cells for a whole host of things either way the stem cells and the animal models and the other kind of models are helping us to see how our ideas will work so you can go to the next step so you can go to the next step right which takes many years to accomplish because it's so complicated. Right. So it is a long process. It takes years and it's very expensive. It's like two to three billion to move all the way through that research pipeline. You know, but you know, I want to leave you with there's so much to be hopeful about. It's not, you know, the cost of that genetic sequencing that's been happening to to read your DNA code, you know, is gone down significantly from tens of thousands to only two thousand dollars per whole genome sequencing. Meaning you can sequence every uh, gene in your body, every all your DNA, mm -hmm. um, so and it's 
happen, it can happen a lot faster. And there's a whole host of whole, whole host of new technology that's been developed in recent years to, to expedite research, which I'm not going to go into. But there's a lot of great technology that's been developed to really are moving things faster than ever. And gene discovery has increased exponentially. Um, and now, like now, multiple um, genes could be discovered per year. And you know, researchers are, are have been really motivated from the outpouring of support from the Ice Bucket Challenge to the ALS community. And you know, the Ice Bucket Challenge has lots of great things: it increased awareness and increased dollars to the association and to research. But it also is a huge motivation factor for researchers because now they have those dollars and they have that to really move quick, quicker than ever towards those treatments and cures that we didn't have before. So the Ice Bucket Challenge does a lot, did a lot of great things that now we can really capitalize on. We're really excited about. Yeah, and that sounds very exciting to me as someone who cares about the ALS families, as everyone at the ALS yes, Association we all does. Do. I think that um, I want to give some credit to everyone that works at all the chapters and nationally because yes. I haven't met anyone that doesn't care on a very personal level. No. Um, but now we have many more ways to attack the disease than we ever did before and ways of knowing if it's working. Right. And so I appreciate what you're doing. Again, contact uh, Dr. Yersak if you have any questions. Learn more at ALSA.org. And we're going to be doing backslash some... Research. <laughs> so yeah, backslash research. Backslash um, research. And there's a really... A, a year ago, we had information on there. Now, the amount of information on the research page is... Exploded. It's exploded. I love to do it. We, 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 we talked about we like explosions earlier. Oh, yeah, no explosions. Sorry, no explosions. <laughs> explosion we, and information is fine. Yeah, explosion of information is a good thing. But we can, that, we can have a whole other podcast I'd love to do about just the website and how you can navigate through it. That can, we can do that in the future. Right, so we'll be doing some more podcasts in this series about some general questions about ALS, including um, what are stem cells, what, what are clinical trials like, what information is out there on the website. So if you have questions that you'd like to see answered in the podcast format, or just one uh, very basic question, make sure to get in touch with us. And thank you for listening and getting involved. Please go to ALSA.org. Find your local chapter as well and uh, get involved in a Walk to Defeat ALS or event um, because your work is clearly making a difference. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you.